The Christmas season is marked by music. And much of that music is specific to this festive season. I doubt that any of us sing joy to the world in the month of July. I doubt we sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem, at Easter. There are some songs that are particular to this Christmas season. What's true for us in our singing is also true in the Nativity story. There are some individuals in the sacred script that have a Christmas song on their lips. We're in the middle of a three-part sermon series entitled Songs of Christmas. Last week, we began by looking at Zechariah's silent symphony. And that silent symphony uh, grew to a Christological crescendo. Next Sunday, we will hear the angelic choir as they sing of the good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. And they tell it to a bunch of red, redneck uh, shepherds on a hillside. And today we get to hear Mary's one-hit wonder. She pretty much had one song, but it was a classic. So I invite you to take your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. I want to read some of the backstory, and then I also want to read a few verses of the Magnificat, which is the song that she sang. Luke chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 26, read through verse 38, then drop down to verse 46 and read through verse 49. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. You will be with child, give birth to a son, give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Out of all the gospel writers, it seems that Luke is the one who gives us the most detailed description of the birth narrative of Jesus. I think he does this because he's an accurate historian and he's a doctor by trade. Undoubtedly, Luke delivered countless babies in his professional career. And Luke begins our passage by telling us that it was the sixth month. Now, don't confuse that with the month of June on your calendar. No, Luke is telling us that what he's about to write takes place in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. 
Luke, like no other gospel writer, weaves together the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus. Throughout chapters 1 and 2 of Luke's gospel, he tells us that John is good, but Jesus is great. John will be called the prophet of the Most High. Jesus is the Son of the Most High. John will point the way of salvation. Jesus is the way of salvation. John will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But Jesus, he will rule and reign on David's throne. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Certainly, Luke is telling us that the birth of John the Baptist is good, but the birth of Jesus is greater. Because there's nothing better than the arrival of the Christ child. So in a masterful way, Luke intertwines the birth narrative of John and the birth narrative of Jesus. So he says that what I'm about to write to you, what I'm about to tell you, takes place in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So it's the end of her second trimester that once again it's the angel Gabriel who comes to give an announcement Now, this is not the first time we've been introduced to Gabriel. We met him last Sunday. He was the one dispatched from the royal throne of God. He was the one that went and and said to Zechariah, God has heard the prayer of you and your wife. Your wife is going to conceive. She's going to give birth to a bouncing baby boy. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And Zechariah, at first, he did not believe What the angel Gabriel said, that caused the preacher to be muted for nine months. It's the same angel named Gabriel who now, six months later, goes to the town of Nazareth to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who is a descendant of David. And the virgin's name is Mary. Before Luke tells us the name of the young girl named Mary, he tells us two important facts about her. First, she is pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. And second, she is a virgin. Now, to be pledged to a man named Joseph means that she's engaged. Marriages in antiquity were similar to the marriage two-step process of our day. It usually began with an engagement. It was a a period of a pledge. Usually that pledge would last about a year. And then after that pledge or after that engagement, there'd be a marriage ceremony where everything would be validated and everything uh, would be uh, declared legal of the union between that man and that woman. So in some ways, the two-step process of engagement and marriage are the same today as they were in antiquity. But in some ways, it's drastically different. For example, I've already said that a typical engagement in antiquity always lasted at least a year, sometimes longer. In our day, engagements could span a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, maybe a year, maybe a little longer. But in the days of the first century, whenever someone was engaged, they were engaged for about a year at least. And... In these days, when a young girl was engaged, she was probably between the ages of 12 to 14. That's probably the age of Mary at this time of our story. Now, that's drastically different than today. I don't know very many seventh graders that are engaged. I don't don't know very many dads of seventh graders who would allow their daughters to be engaged. It's a different time. It's a different season. But in that day, it was customary. It was normal 
for a young girl between the ages of 12 and 14 to be identified as a worthy wife. And so she would be betrothed. She would be engaged or pledged to a man. Now, in the days of Mary and Joseph, an engagement was legally binding. In order for it to be dissolved, it required a divorce. Uh, That's different than in our day. Uh, People can get engaged all the time, and that doesn't require a divorce to break that engagement. But in the days of the first century, when a man and a woman came together for a pledge or an engagement, that was legally binding. Now, they did not live together. They did not act like a married couple until the night of their wedding. And then after their wedding, then they would live together and they would have normal relationships as a husband and a wife, but only after the marriage ceremony. Luke makes it abundantly clear that the angel Gabriel goes to Nazareth to a virgin who is pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who is a descendant of David, and the virgin's name is Mary. He tells us twice before he gives us her name that she is a virgin. In Luke's gospel, The virgin birth of Christ is huge. It is paramount. It's not an optional teaching of the church. It's not an optional doctrine of the gospel. It is fundamental and foundational. It is at the core of who we are and what we believe. For we affirm the virgin birth of Christ. Literally, it's the virgin conception of Christ our Lord. And on two occasions, before Luke tells us her name, he says she is a virgin. Now, throughout the ages, there have been numerous people who have tried to deny or dismiss the validity of the virgin birth. And they usually have an argument that begins in this fashion. They will say, listen, the word for virgin, whether it's the Old Testament Hebrew or the New Testament Greek, That word that's rendered virgin can equally and also be understood as a young girl or a maiden. So what Luke is telling us, what the people of the Old Testament are telling us, is that she's just a young girl, which is validated by the fact that she's between the ages of 12 and 14. But Luke removes all ambiguity. It is true that the Old Testament Hebrew word for virgin and the New Testament Greek word for virgin, it can be understood as one who is sexually pure, a virgin, or it can be understood as one who is merely a young person or a maiden or a young lady. But Luke, he says, I I understand the languages. I know how this can be easily confusing. So he removes all ambiguity. Now, in verses 26 and 27, when he says the word virgin, he does use that word that can be translated virgin or virgin or young girl. But in verse 34, in verse 34, after the announcement is given to Mary, Mary responds, how can this be since I am a virgin? Your translation may read like mine, and it's the third time that you've heard that word virgin. But in verse 34, Luke removes the ambiguity He doesn't use the Greek word that's translated virgin or young girl. Literally, what the ancient text says is that Mary asked the question, how can this be since I do not know a man? He's removing any confusion. He's removing any ambiguity. It's not only that she's young, 
but she does not know a man. Now you got to come to understand what does that phrase mean, to know a man? What does it mean to know somebody? Well, she's not saying that she doesn't know biology, that she doesn't know the difference between a male and a female. No, in the days of Mary, there were only two genders. In our day, there are only two genders. Mary understands that what a male looks like and what a female looks like. It's not that she flunked biology. It's not that she has no concept of what a man is and what a woman is. No, when she says, I do not know a man, it's not a statement of ignorance. It's also not a jab against Joseph, as if to say, this one I'm pledged to is a poor excuse of a man. I don't even know a man. I wish you'd show me a good example of a man because the one my daddy got for me is not really a good man anyway. I wish you'd give me a good man. No, she's not giving a jab against Joseph, as if to say, he's a poor, pathetic excuse of what a man ought to be. No, she's not being vindictive. She's not doing a jab against her future husband. No, in the Bible, to know is to know intimately. It is to know sexually. So that the Bible says that Adam knew his wife Eve. Abraham knew Sarah. Jacob knew Rachel. But in our story, Mary says, I do not know a man the way she says it, the way she uh, says the word no, it's in present tense, which implies that not only has she not known a man in the past, but even presently she does not know a man. So what she's saying is, uh, Joseph and I are not fooling around, and I ain't cheating on him, and I'm not fooling around with anybody else. I do not know a man. Haven't known one in the past, not knowing one now. So in our story, Luke makes it obviously abundantly clear that Mary is a virgin not just a young girl but that she has never sexually known a man Gabriel gives this birth announcement he says you are highly favored Mary is troubled by such a greeting the word favored is a great word that means to be sovereignly selected by God's kindness to show God's goodness. That's favored. This is not the only time in the sacred script where the word favored is used. God in the Old Testament favored numerous people. In fact, the scripture says that God favored Noah, and Noah built and boarded an ark for him, for his family, during the flood. That it was Hannah, who is favored of the Lord, she conceives, she gives birth to that great prophet Samuel. Gideon is described as being favored of God to lead the Israelites during the period of the judges. David is described as being favored of God to go and retrieve the ark of God, bring it back to the city of God where it rightfully belongs for the people of God. So to be favored is to be sovereignly selected by God's kindness to do God's goodness. I don't know about you, but I want to be favored. I want you to be favored. I want this to be a favored family of God. 
When we speak about God's favor, it has nothing to do with finances. It has nothing to do with your personal health. The the favor of God has nothing to do with the absence of crisis or catastrophe or sickness or suffering in your life. For you to be favored of God is to be sovereignly selected by God Almighty, by his kindness, to do his goodness. I don't know about you, but I want the favor of the Lord. You want the favor of God. This church longs for the favor of God. So that people look at your life and my life, they look at this congregation, and when they see God's movement among his people, the only explanation is that this is a favored place by God Almighty, sovereignly selected by God's kindness to do God's goodness. Mary, you are highly favored. Now this troubled her. Now, the word trouble in your mind may conjure up some negative thoughts or feelings. Maybe it conjures up the idea that she's afraid or fearful. But the word troubled really is a word that portrays the idea of intensely curious. She's perplexed. She's interested. She's curious. What does this mean? The fact that this angel named Gabriel has come and he has declared that I am highly favored before the Lord, for the Lord is with me. She is troubled, not in a negative sense, in a curious sense. What does this mean? Gabriel continued, you will be with child. You'll give birth to a son. You'll give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He will rule and reign on David's throne. The house of Jacob will be established forever. His kingdom will never end. In other words, this one that is going to be given to you through you, this Christ child, this Messiah, no one will outmatch him and nothing will outlast him. He is going to be eternal. He is Christ. He is the one who will rule and reign on David's throne both now and forevermore. His kingdom will never end. He will never be uh, abducted from the throne. He'll never be evicted from the throne. His kingdom, his throne will be established both now and forevermore. And Mary simply says, how can this be? For I've never known a man. She's perplexed, not because Christ is coming, She's perplexed, not because God is now speaking after 400 years of silence, which, by the way, most of us don't wait very well on God, do we? Can we imagine waiting on God for 400 years to speak? We can't wait for months for God to speak. And so we want God to speak now. And so they've been waiting 400 years. She's not perplexed that it's taken God 400 years, and finally he's going to speak. She is not overwhelmed by the reality that God is moving again in the lives of his people. She's not even shocked that the Christ child's kingdom will never end. She's not shocked or perplexed or troubled that the reality that his establishment will be made forever and ever and ever. She's shocked because she thinks to herself, how can this be? I've never known a man. She's young. But she knows it takes two to tango, and she ain't never danced. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
It takes two to tango, and she has never gone to the dance party. She knows. I've never known a man. How can this be? The most shocking thing to her is that she, of all people, she is going to be the one who's going to bear a child. How can this be? How is this going to happen? Now, friends, there may have been times when you have um, had conversations with a promiscuous teenager, that teenager comes up pregnant and she asks you, uh, how did this happen? And there's everything inside of you that says, darling, I think you know exactly how it happened, right? I mean, we, we know she's being promiscuous, but Mary, Mary, she doesn't know a man. She's never been engaged sexually with anybody. How can this be? And Gabriel describes it. The power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Luke is very discreet in his description. He doesn't give us a whole lot of details, but I can promise you this much. He is telling us that there is nothing about this that is risque. There's nothing about this that's out of bounds. There's nothing about this that's sensual. There is nothing about this that is sexual. That Mary will conceive because the power of the Most High God will overshadow her. That word overshadow, it means to surround, to encompass from the inside out. That she will be encompassed by the presence of Christ. There's nothing vulgar about this. Oh, there are some liberal heretics in our day that try to accuse God of foul play. They try to accuse God of doing something vulgar by overstepping his bounds, by overpowering her. Scripture doesn't say that God overpowered her. It says that God overshadowed her, and there's a huge difference. God did not do anything out of bounds. He did not do anything with foul play. This is not a story of mythology from antiquity where the gods step out of the heavens and have sexual relationships with the women of the world. This story has nothing to do with that. This is not like those stories. And the way you know it is because Gabriel says the holy child will be the son of God. That everything about this is holy. There's nothing about this that's unholy. Now here is where you draw a great line of distinction between the birth of Jesus and the birth of everybody else on planet earth. Because while it's true that your children are cute and they're cuddly and they're adorable, they ain't holy. Your children are not born holy. 
My children are not born holy. There's no child that's ever been born save Jesus Christ who is born holy. He's the only one. Gabriel makes it clear that this whole activity of God is holy. What's conceived inside of Mary is holy. The way he's conceived inside of Mary is holy. His birth is holy. Everything surrounding the birth of Christ is holy. And this holy one is the Son of God. Jesus is holy. He was born holy. He lived holy. He died holy. He was raised holy. He ascended holy. He is holy every day and twice on Sunday. He's been holy from eternity past to eternity future. Now that cannot be said of you and me. One of the toughest challenges of a parent is to point your sinful, selfish, deviant, children who will lie and steal and cheat and you've got to point them to Jesus Christ and if right now you're thinking to yourself my Johnny's not like that my Jill's not like that friends you don't have an adequate understanding of total depravity according to the sacred scripture because all of us are completely and utterly sinful at birth sinful from the time our mother conceived us. But the conception of Jesus is holy. Everything that surrounds it, Luke says, is holy. From the lips of Gabriel, who is right there beside God Almighty, Gabriel declares that everything about this conception and this birth is holy for what's inside of you will be the Son of God. And Mary receives this word from Gabriel. Now, I've already made mention that the reality that Jesus was miraculously conceived, delivered through a virgin birth, is not an optional doctrine of the church. At the core of who we are. There have been some people who have said, really, is it that big of a deal? So long as we have the star, the stable, and the shepherds, as long as we have Mary, Joseph, and the teeny tiny baby, as long as we have the donkeys and the cattle and the wise men from the east, I mean, isn't that enough? And the answer is no. Because Luke goes to great effort to make it clear to you and to me, the reader of the sacred script, he makes it clear that Jesus was miraculously conceived by the power of God Almighty. I like what Daryl Bach said in his commentary when he discussed uh, this conception. He said, if God in his creative power can make something out of nothing, then God has no problem placing the Christ child in a virgin's womb. Stop and consider that. That if our God can create everything seen and unseen, visible and invisible, merely by a spoken word, if he can make something out of nothing, according to Genesis 1-1, that's exactly what he did. If he can make something out of nothing, he has no problem placing the Christ child in a virgin's womb. There have been some who have tried to dismiss this, some who have tried to deny this. I want to say that if we dismiss this doctrine, it's not only that we lose Christmas, but the gospel is in jeopardy. 
For if the virgin birth is not true, then the scripture is unreliable. If the virgin birth is not true, then the scripture is unreliable. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the authors give evidence that when Messiah comes, uh, he will come in a miraculous way. He will come through a virgin birth. It's hinted at even as early as Genesis 3.15. Following the fall of Adam and Eve, it is God who is speaking to the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity, which is hostility, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike his heel, but her offspring will crush your head. Most theologians call that the proto-euangelion. It's the first mention of the good news of the gospel in the Bible. That what Genesis 3.15 describes takes place on Good Friday at Easter Sunday. For on Good Friday, Jesus was crucified. And in that moment, Satan nipped at the heel of Jesus and dealt a blow, a fatal blow. And Jesus died. His dead body was taken off the cross. He was placed to a borrowed grave. A stone was rolled in front of him. And on the third day, Jesus burst forth from the tomb. He was raised from the dead, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And I'm convinced that the first step that Jesus took was a crushing of the serpent's head. And we find fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 in glorious Easter Sunday. But my friends, if we take a closer look at what the Lord said in Genesis 3.15, we'll discover this. That when he says, I will put enmity, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The word offspring in the Hebrew ancient text is the word for seed, singular. What's interesting is that a woman doesn't have a seed. A woman has an egg. And even when her egg is fertilized by a seed... The Bible then calls that a living being. We call it a, a zygote or later an embryo. We have different words for different stages of human life. But the Bible says that the moment of conception, that's when a person becomes a person. A person becomes a living being. So when the Lord says that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, the reality that should jump off the page is that a woman doesn't have a seed. The only way she can have a seed is by a miraculous conception. So I would say that Genesis 3.15 does more than just hint. It, it declares that the virgin will give birth. You go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and Isaiah the prophet says, The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son. You'll give him the name Emmanuel. It is Matthew who adopts that verse and applies it to Jesus, and then further says that Emmanuel means God with us. Both Matthew and Luke Make it clear that Mary was a virgin and she conceived and gave birth to the Christ child. Friend, if the virgin birth isn't true, then the Bible's unreliable. But I came tonight, to, this morning, to tell you that the Bible is reliable. You can trust the Word of God. 
It's not true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. It is true that the stories of the scripture are the very word of God. And we are a people of the book. And we stand on the authority of God's word, not only on Sunday, but every day of the week, every hour, every minute of the day. Because we are a people and we know that God and his word are trustworthy. And they're true. If the virgin birth is not true, then Jesus is not God. If Jesus was somehow formed in a normal, routine way between a man and a woman, then his divinity is in jeopardy. His divinity is in question. And yet the Bible says in a place like John's Gospel that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus said of himself, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. It is the author of the Hebrew text in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 who says the Son of God, being Jesus, the Son is the exact representation of his being, his being God Almighty. That the Son is an exact representation of God Almighty. Not like God, not a creation of God, but he is God. He is God in the flesh. Because the Bible is true, I can declare to you today that Jesus is fully God and fully man. If the virgin birth is denied or dismissed, then the very deity of Jesus is called into question. If the virgin birth is denied, then there is no trinity. And yet the Bible affirms that our one God is in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now, I know what you know. The word trinity is nowhere found in the Bible. You can't find it from Genesis 1 to the very end of Revelation. And yet... The reality of the Trinity is stamped all over sacred scripture. God takes divine selfies. And every time he takes a divine selfie, it is a Trinitarian portrait. Let me quickly give you two examples. At the baptism of Jesus, we hear the voice of God the Father saying, this is my son, listen to him. We see God the Son as Jesus goes into the water and comes up out of the water. And as he comes up out of the water, it is God the Spirit in the form of a dove that descends upon Jesus and thrusts him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. In that one episode of the baptism of Jesus, we find a divine Trinitarian selfie of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let me give you another quick example. In Ephesians chapter 1, In some of the opening lines of that great, powerful letter by the Apostle Paul, it is Paul who says that it is God the Father who has chosen you before the very foundation of the world. It is God the Son who has redeemed you. It is God the Spirit who has sealed your salvation as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So in those few verses, in those few words of the sacred sentence of Scripture, we find a Trinitarian picture of God Almighty who is Father, Son, and Spirit. If Jesus is not born of a virgin, then the Trinity is in jeopardy. If the virgin birth isn't true, then the death of Jesus means nothing. If the virgin birth isn't true, then Jesus is just a mere man. And if a mere man died, even if it was a horrific death, 
His blood cannot cover over anybody's sins. It requires a suitable substitute, one who is fully like us and one who is fully not like us, combined into one. It requires the Christ child. It requires the God-man, fully God and fully human. Yet the Bible says of Jesus that he who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross. That on the cross, that we um, are in Christ, therefore we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come based solely upon the sufficient work of the substitutionary action of Jesus on Calvary's hill. And Jesus declares for us that if we are in Christ, therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in him. Because of his work on the cross, we know that we have been saved. We have been healed. We have been forgiven. His perfect blood covers over all of our sin. But last but not least, listen, my friend, if the, if the virgin birth isn't true, then how can you believe any miracle of the Bible? If, if this one isn't true, then how do you know the veracity, the truthfulness that Jesus fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish? How do you know with any certainty that he unstopped deaf ears, opened blind eyes, enabled the mute to speak? How do you know with any confidence that Jesus walked on water? How do you know that Jesus said into death, Lazarus come out and the dead man came hopping out of the grave? How do you know any of the miracles came true if this original one did not come true. And oh friend, if Jesus is not miraculously conceived of a virgin, if this is not true, why, oh why, would we believe in the resurrection on the empty tomb on the third day on Easter Sunday? We will be fools to believe that hoax. But I'm not looking at fools, am I? I'm looking at the faithful saints of God. You know from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. You know from the inside out that this is no fallacy. This is no myth. You know because the transforming power of God's word in your life, you know that though Jesus was dead and crucified and buried on the third day, Jesus got up. He rose victoriously from the grave. He walked out of the tomb. He is conquering king. He ascended to the heavens. And one day he will peel the eastern sky. He will descend. He will establish his kingdom forever and ever. His kingdom, by the way, which has never not been a kingdom, his kingdom will be established on earth and his kingdom will rule and reign forever and ever and you know this not because you're fools but you know it because you're the faithful saints of God Almighty see I'm here to tell you that what we talk about today is a big deal because the virgin birth of Christ is true because the scripture is reliable. And the scripture declares that Jesus is God. And the scripture affirms that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the scripture tells us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that his blood covers over all of our sins. And the scripture reminds us, teaches us, and tells us that on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. You can believe any miracle of the Bible. And therefore, you can believe all the miracles of the Bible. So how do you respond to this? How does Mary respond? How can this be? This is really too good to be true. 
How can this be? It is Gabriel who gives a sermonic punchline in the passage when he says, for nothing is impossible with God. How do you explain that a virgin will conceive nothing is impossible with God? How do you reason that the God who was mute now speaks after 400 years of divine gag order, nothing is impossible with God? How do you understand that the God who used to move is now going to move again? Nothing is impossible with God. How do you reason that the, that the gospel can transform a broken sinful life like yours and a broken sinful life like mine? Nothing is impossible with God. How do you understand that a marriage that was on the rocks can now be strong as rock because nothing is impossible with God? How do you explain that the prodigal who was in a far country is now safe at home? Nothing is impossible with God. How do you explain that now there's employment where for month after month after month there was unemployment? Nothing is impossible with God. Friend, I don't know the problem that drags you into church, but this morning on this Christmas season, I want to tell you that nothing is impossible with God. What Gabriel said to Mary, I say to you today, nothing is impossible with God Almighty. Now the question is, do you believe this? Mary did. Then she sang a song. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul rejoices in God my Savior. For he has remembered me in my humble estate. I am a servant. That word servant that she uses in the Magnificat, that word servant she also said to Gabriel, I am a servant. It's the word doulos. It means the bondservant. It means that Mary knew who she was and whose she was. And friend, those are two fundamental questions that you have to answer in life. Who am I and whose am I? And if you get these two questions right, you're well on your way to making sense and success in life. If you know who you are, and if you know whose you are, then you can answer the other questions of life. Mary says, I am a servant of God Almighty. That's who I am. That's whose I am. I am his servant. I belong to him. He has favored me. He has chosen me. He has sovereignly selected me by his kindness to do his goodness. I know who I am and I know whose I am. And then she goes on and she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is not an arrogant statement of Mother Mary. When we read that statement, if it was applied to us, we would emphasize the wrong word. We would say, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, right? We would emphasize the me of the statement. But the proper emphasis of this statement is from now on. From now on, all generations will know who I am and whose I am. From now on, 
everything has changed. From now on, everything has shifted. God has touched me and he's changed me forever. Friend, is that your testimony? Can you testify like Mary that from now on, I have turned my sights on the, on the Messiah. From now on, I will make much of Jesus. I will make much of the Christ child. I will live for him. I will follow him. From now on, all people will identify me as a follower of my son and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say with Mary, from now on, I've been touched and changed. I will never be the same. And all generations, if they even remember us, they'll remember that we were blessed by God because we made much of God. And then ultimately she says, this holy one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Once again, friend, can you testify to that truth today? That God is holy and this holy God has done great things for you. It's not just that God has intervened and done some good things. He's done some great things for you. He created you. He saved you. He sanctifies you. He carries you. He's redeemed you. He's given you life and purpose. He gives you meaning in life. He gives you a home in heaven. He gives you the promise that one day he will personally come to receive you unto himself. He has done great things for me. And I know that sometimes we can look around this world and see all the chaos and all the hatred and all the bitterness and all the sickness and all the suffering. Those things don't define us. We're defined by the great God. Holy is his name. He has done great things for me. Friend, do you know who you are? Do you know whose you are? Can you say to every generation to come that you belong to Christ? And from now on, every generation will call you blessed because of your position and your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And can you testify to anyone who will listen that God has done great things for you? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. In verse four of that great hymn, for he promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Friends, do you know how great God has been to you? Do you know who you are? Do you know whose you are? Today you can answer those questions. Do you testify to every generation that you identify with Jesus? And by your lips and by your life, do you, do you verbalize and verify that he has done great things for you? He is great, and he's greatly to be praised. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation if there's one here who does not know who they are or whose they are, let today be a day of enlightenment and salvation. Draw them, Holy Spirit, unto you. Oh, Father, we pray that if there's one here who needs to come for salvation, let him or her come. 
If there's one here who needs to come for prayer, let them come. One here needs to come for church membership, let them come. If there's one here who needs to just ask uh, for guidance and prayer, Lord, let them come. Lord Jesus, help us to know who we are, to know whose we are, to make much of you to all generations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.